0: Conversations with future generation, exploring the worlds of investing, philanthropy, mental health and supporting children and youth at risk with people who are making the world a better place. There are many people like that in Australia. They're incredibly generous people. I aspire to try and change things for the better and inspire others to do the same. Only concern yourself with investments of absolutely high quality hosted by Louise Walsh, the CEO of Impact Investment Companies, Future Generation Australia and Future Generation Global. This is Conversations with Future Generation.
1: Welcome to episode two, season two of Conversations with Future Generation. I'm Louise Walsh, the CEO of the Future Generation Companies and joining me today is John Coates. John is president of the Australian Olympic Committee and vice president of the International Olympic Committee. John is one of the leading sports administrators globally And in 2006, he was appointed as a Companion of the Order of Australia for his service to the development of sport nationally and internationally. Welcome, John, and thank you for joining me this morning.
0: My pleasure, Louise.
1: Now, firstly, John, I'm not sure if you remember this, but when I joined the Sydney Olympic bid, you told me that both Brisbane and Melbourne had bid unsuccessfully for the Olympic Games and that we won't see another Games in Australia in our lifetime if we didn't win Sydney. You certainly fired me up at the time. You must be mighty pleased about Brisbane and of course the 2032 preferred status for the Olympics there. What did it take exactly to get Southeast Queensland slash Brisbane as the preferred candidate? We haven't heard too much on the detail of how it was pulled off. Can you fill us in a bit more other than what we've read in the media to date? Yeah,
0: you know, The procedure has um, changed significantly since we successfully bid with Sydney. Um, these days you the, the IOC was concerned about the cost of bidding. We, we spent $30 million back then. Australian, uh, Tokyo would have spent $50 million US. Um, there were too many losers, too much wasted money. Um, there was potential for corruption, and there's some suggestions of that with parts of Tokyo. Um, and uh, so the IOC wanted to make it um, more transparent um, and uh, improve the governance of bidding. I uh, chaired a committee that looked at the bidding process and we decided, and the IOC backed us, the full members, to establish two commissions, the future host summer and the future host winter commissions. They're permanent bodies, um, none of the members of whom are members of the IOC executive board, and they comprise IOC members, NOC, National Olympic Committee uh, representatives, Paralympic committee president, federation presidents, that's the sports federations. And so you sh- if you show an interest, you um, which just takes a, a letter, um, and they put you into what's called a continuous dialogue. And then you, you continue to update this group um, with uh, information as we've been doing with Brisbane. And um, they get reports from you, you have opportunities to do presentations to them, as we did on the 8th of February. Um, That was our last one. uh, and The other cities did at the same time. And then they were satisfied that um, we were at a stage where we could uh, move to targeted dialogue, so continuous dialogue, targeted dialogue, and be the preferred and only host. Um, And so we're now providing them with, um, documentation it's like a, the, the final due diligence they'd already done a, a 50 page um, uh, assessment feasibility assessment on brisbane looked at us strategically looked at us technically and now um, there used to be the bid books you remember well there's a much simplified questionnaire uh, there's the provision of all the uh, documentation that has to be provided and we're, we're putting all that together um, the undertakings from the federal government that's all happening at the moment that will um, go to the future host commission and it'll make a recommendation to the um, IOC executive board to um, if, if they're satisfied with us and they'll come they'll have another meeting with us they won't be able to come out it'll be remote um, they'll put us They'll make, hopefully make a recommendation that we can go to a selection before an IOC session and um, so the, these days you, and, and that could, the next session is in July, just before the Olympics in Tokyo. And so instead of you're no longer allowed to travel the world, you're no longer allowed to or obligated to bring IOC members to your country, um, it's all done through this commission and they report to the executive board and then to the session. Uh, you're not allowed to um, have your embassies Pay the uh, IOC members' visits. You're not allowed to front them. Uh, you're not allowed to have um, public campaigns internationally. Um, and so as a result, um, at this stage, with a feasibility, cost of a feasibility by the um, Councils of Southeast Queensland, a value proposition assessment by the Queensland government, um, preparation of a master plan by our consultants, I think we're up around the um, $7 million. And we'll finish this off, um, uh, eight or nine million dollars, absolute maximum. And um, uh, and at this stage, uh, we're the only city being good um, to this expense, this final expense. And um, hopefully, uh, we satisfy them.
1: Well, I have to say, John, it just sounds incredibly different to the experience that we went through, in Sydney. And I think it's just fantastic on the cost front as well, because I mean, we know what lengths we went to back in Sydney, and I have to say. It was an amazing gig to work on. But um, it just, uh, yeah, it's commended to, to you and the, the rest of the IOC for changing the process.
0: It's going about the same way that a major corporation would decide if they're going to make a major investment. You know? well,
1: look, the other thing I remember no. you saying to me yeah. in the early days of Sydney's bid was Graham Richardson's advice about needing to look every IOC member in the eye and ask them directly if we had their vote whenever we met with them and then do it again in that last 24 hours to 48 hours before the final vote in Monte Carlo. The bid to me was like working in the inner sanctum of an election campaign. I have to say it was my most cherished work gig (laughs) so far, working with you and the lobby team on helping devise those individual strategies for each IOC member. But after masterminding Sydney and Brisbane's win, what's your view on why the Soccer World Cup 2022 bid which was won by Qatar, ended up with such a poor result for us. I mean, I just don't quite understand why we didn't pull out earlier and avoid the embarrassing result.
0: Look, I I wasn't close enough to it. I'm I'm a friend of Frank Lowy's. Um, I do know that um, he, um, I think it's fair that he believed some of those who said that they'd be supporting us. And Mm -hmm. um, so the... um, and that's a lesson learned in this world of Olympic politics and sporting politics. You know, Richardson said, to you, um, uh, you've got to say, are you going to support us? And if they say no, then you've got to chase them under an exhaustive ballot for their second or third um, votes. I don't know the, much more about it other than that, it's, um, uh I think they had enough assurances to justify going the distance, and they did. So it's a,
1: mm, it's a shame they didn't, uh, maybe they needed to talk to Richo a bit more like, like yeah. we did for Sydney. Uh, anyway.
0: Oh, they're a different beast. Also FIFA, mm. you know, the the IOC has had its moments um, in terms of um, uh, transparency and all of those things and corruption, but um, the IOC is cleaned up in the, and um, certainly uh, FIFA is also a very different beast these days. And, um, I think the uh, the selection of Australia to host the 2024 FIFA Women's World Cup, um, that was um, a process that's um, pretty much like the, the way the IOC does it now.
1: So let's now talk about the Tokyo Olympics coming up in July. Um, it's tricky, isn't it, when the, the polls that I've been reading say that 80% of the Japanese don't want the Games to happen due to their concerns about the coronavirus. Also, I believe, You know, the recent Australian Tennis Open got pretty lucky and pulled it off in the end. I mean, as you know, we're talking about a complexity factor so much higher for putting on Olympic Games with its 33 sports, not one alone, like a tennis tournament. I mean, the mind boggles due to coronavirus plus the cost factor as well. I mean, didn't I think the Australian Open cost an extra 80 to $100 million this year? I mean, anything you'd like to comment on here in relation to Tokyo?
0: Well you said as you know, well I certainly know. <laughs> I'm the um the chair of the IOC Coordination Commission for Tokyo, just like Jack Rog was, you recall, for Sydney. Mm, yep. And um I thought I had a pretty good gig for a while there. <laughs> so did I. I. <laughs> I'd been up there um since they were elected in um twenty thirteen. I think I'd been thirty five times, four times a year and then special occasions and um and they were so advanced and they're very organized um people as you know and there was great teamwork between the japan and the tokyo municipal governments and the um uh the organizing committee and then we cop COVID, and um it's um it's been a very complex um year and a bit since then we uh we first off um had an we we sat down with the um prime minister um uh, was Abe then and um We reached an agreement to postpone the Games by one year to the same dates. That then meant going and um, re-engaging, re-securing 43 different venues under different ownerships. You know, the sports venues, the broadcast centre, we'd spent uh, $80 million on wiring at that stage. And um, the the Olympic Village for 16,500 people that was um, That's a construction a consortium of 11 developers. So we had to say to them, well, um, how about you take um, delivery one year later?
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> Crazy. And, uh,
0: yeah. so that that yeah. was done by the um, Tokyo Municipal Government, the negotiations with the Broadcast Centre. You know, they had bookings for the next year. We've had to um, slide hotel accommodation at 80 hotels had to be re-secured for the next year and we had to minimize the the uh, cancellation fees for the first year
1: <laughs>
0: and so we did all that uh, the japanese government and uh, the organizing committee did that very well then the next stage was um we and they spent um the next six months just looking at were uh, the worst case scenarios for the games and um, we are preparing on the basis that we were that there wouldn't be a vaccination. Um, and um, so we did all that. And then we, we spent the next, um, they formed a very high powered task force um, between the uh, two governments there and the organizing committee. We already had, uh, we're working with WHO. Um, and so the, uh, we then set out on the various countermeasures and we've been working through those. And um, we um, I have a regular meeting once a week and sometimes more um, with their CEO as we look at specifics. Um, we've only now been able to get um, IOC senior staff in there for operational readiness to you know, to walk through the venues and check things out. Um, and they've all got that. The, uh, the setup has to change significantly because of the... Um, because of COVID and um, separating athletes. We've decided principally that um, the athletes will only go into Japan five days before the village opens. If they're going to train somewhere else, uh, they've got to be well protected there. But five days before, and they'll leave generally two days after their competition ends, some exceptions where you've got to be there when the horses arrive and things like that. Um, and the idea there was just to minimise the number of people in the village and thus the risk of um, COVID spreading or, being, or getting into the village. Um, the athletes are tested before they leave Australia um, within 72 hours, tested on arrival, tested every four days, temperature tested in advance, and um, they are restricted to the Olympic village and their competition venue. That's it. They can't go downtown uh, because, as you said, there's still a very um, worry, a great worry amongst the Japanese about their safety, and we have to respect that. So um, we don't... Um, the whole Olympic... Uh, all the stakeholders at this stage aren't allowed to use public transport, um, aren't allowed to mix. So we... Um, there are these. Um, now it's it's going to be better um, as more and more um, athletes potentially are vaccinated. We understand that the Australian team will be vaccinated around June this year, and you know, without taking any priority. And uh, the more they the more like that, the better. Um, interestingly, the other day, the uh, the Chinese um, uh, have offered to any countries that um, approve their vaccine um they will and uh, if the athletes aren't in the um can't be aff- if they can't afford to pay for the athletes to be vaccinated or they don't have priority in those countries they'll get um the the chinese will pay for the vaccination and they'll give them two more for the public no. for the <laughs> pressure so it's, uh, it's, uh, but that's only but i think there's something like 30 countries where the vaccine is accepted um and um probably haven't applied here, mm. um, only people allowed in the village will be those who've got a, a job. So ministers for sport and others who want to drop in and say hello, um, they won't be allowed in. Mm. The separation at the venues, all of those things. We we'd, we were looking at the buses the other day and the separation of the right mm. distancing on the buses and we suddenly worked out we needed tw- twice the fleet. <laughs>
1: I was about to say, the logistics is just um, mind-boggling.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and now, um, mm. you know, so we're doing all of those things, the government is looking at whether they will be able to take foreign spectators. That's not those who've got a job and all the um, accredited people who run the sports and things like that. Um, but they're looking at that. And the they're looking at um, venue capacity next month. Um, and uh, so there may be some restrictions there. Uh, not for the Japanese public who've already bought their tickets, but um, if there is a restriction on those from overseas, and um, then obviously it means uh, refunding tickets and refunding um, accommodation. You talked about, what was it, $80 million for the Australian Open. The cost of the postponement and the cost of all these countermeasures is $2.8 billion US. Wow. And yep. um. Um, we, um, they you know they, they told us that figure in December, and President Bark said to me, John ring the Governor, have a talk to her and just see if she's all right with this. <laughs> and she said, look, uh, you know, because it's split up amongst them, and she said, John, John we have to do it. No, it's um, uh, we've already approved the money in the um, Tokyo Municipal Assembly, um, and um, so they. They're amazing. Um, I went then in November to um, to meet uh, Suga, the new prime minister, with um, Thomas Bark. We were there at the same time as um, uh, Scott Morrison was there, and uh, which didn't hurt when he invited Thomas Bark around to have a talk about Brisbane, (laughs) um, as they tell. But um, the determination is um, is quite amazing, Mm. and notwithstanding you know, where this is in the polls. Mm. Uh, and uh, But we we think that once we better educate everyone as to what the safety procedures we're taking for them is and all of those things, when the uh, very much restricted Olympic torch commences, there won't be the same crowds, that um, uh, we'll be able to turn around the support Mm. and the uh, opinions.
1: Yeah, no, I I, I think you will too. And, I mean, it's just the only thing that... Is such a shame, isn't it? About this is as as you know that the spirit of the games, you know, getting the community behind it, the athletes. Yeah. That we all remember that buzz in Sydney <laughs> and other games we've been to. and some some it's better than others, of course. That's it, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how how you, how you pull that off.
0: Well, these these are well, you know, these are very different games. We've never seen them before, and I hope we don't again. But the bottom line was for um, us on the sporting side giving the athletes the opportunity to compete. You know, they most of them only get one crack at this. And um, some have dropped out because they couldn't afford another year away from study or work. Uh, But most are continuing, but keeping them motivated has been difficult. Um, But, you know, we had an obligation to um, keep the dream alive, as they say. Well,
1: all the very, very best. And I know it's in fantastic hands With you on that front, we'll certainly all be tuning in. May not be there, of course.
0: (laughs) I reckon the um, the ratings will be through the roof.
1: Ah, the broadcasters are going to be very, very happy. I can tell you that about that. Absolutely, record numbers. Now, just on another tact, I mean, Josephine Suker has, of course, been recently announced as the new chairman of the Australian Sports Commission. Now, it's no secret that you didn't have a uh, a good relationship with her predecessor, John Wiley. Now, how are you going to not get into another swinging match with her? I can see you, you're off to a good start in the media when her appointment was announced. But oh, what right. about what about post-Tokyo, once we get through all of that and the dust settles and we've got the medal count there? and
0: Well, one of the issues with um, John Wiley was that um, we set a medal target, the Australian Olympic Committee leading into Sydney, because we went to... Prime Minister Keating, and we secured another 135 million dollars over four years of additional funding for our team to prepare it, and we um, we increased from 27 medals in 1992. um, We saw him in '93. um, We got 58 medals in Sydney, Um, and Mm. you know you you have to do well in your home games. But Mm. since then, uh, we kept the medal tally one year, one games too much, too long. Um, it puts too much pressure on the athletes. Our athletes' commission have told us, and the the other thing is that um, we also were don't agree with the concept of just f- uh, they had a winning edge in funding. The Australian Olympic Committee is has got um, thirty three summer member sports and seven winter sports, and we've got an obligation to um, give them all a hand to get to the Olympic Games, uh, help them qualify. Uh, because if we if they don't get to a games um, uh then you know they they don't have the profile in this country, and some of them um they drop off the radar there there are mm-hmm. and there are different kids who are suited for different sports um and um uh you know not everyone's going to be um swimming running or whatever um You've got, uh, you know, you've got your biathlons and you've got your... Jim Wolfenson passed away the other day. You probably saw it, our World Bank president. He was an Olympic fencer. And um, he uh, he used to joke, he, it was the most important thing in his life, but he used to joke that people said it was one of the easiest sports to get to, and I'm not sure that. but um, <laughs> there is a whole group of different kids who are suited to different things. And the Australian Olympic Committee's view on all this is that... We also our role is to ensure that um, uh, that we play a role in uh, improving the health and wellbeing of all of all Australians um, and uh, young kids and seniors and all of that through sport uh, participations important, and then the some of them will get through to the Olympic teams and uh, if the preparation's been good and if the the pathways are good, the medals will follow. Uh, so, but it's um so the difference with um, the philosophy that John had of winning um, we dis- disregarded and then the other um, the other thing that um, I'm sure Josephine's aware of is that um, uh, he wanted to exert influence over us. he wanted to um, help spend our money. Um, the foundation's money <laughs> so he what he did is he interfered in the free elections of our member sports put people on the various boards and, um, and even tried to come up with someone to unseat me, the of him.
1: <laughs> yes, I, I certainly read all about that, John. So uh, yeah. all, all yeah. the best with Josephine. I do know her and I'm sure uh, yeah, uh, I'll are, be looking right. forward to seeing how that goes. Now, on a lighter note, if you could only attend one Olympic event, now I know that's going to be impossibly not true with you, but what would it be? Now, I know, you, I know you're an ex-roller, but let's say you couldn't go to rowing. What would you go to?
0: Yeah, that's interesting because that you know the rowing I never miss. It's over. There's 14 events over four sessions, and um, that's where I'm always. But the I think the greatest um, um, sport is at the track and field. Um, the night at the track and field, take the night, Catherine one. Mm. Yeah, you know, we had we had uh, Tatiana silver medal in the um, in the pole vault. You had the uh, Michael Johnson mm. win the men's 400 metres. There was a magnificent 10,000-metre mm. race for the men. Um, I think Jai Tarima might have got a, a medal mm. in the yep. triple jump. Um, it was unbelievable that you at a night at the track and track and field, there's something happening around the, the place, um, you know, wherever you look. Yes, and yeah. So I think... Uh, that's the greatest. Um, I don't think anyone could dispute that. No, no. Uh, we all have our favourites, but that's the greatest um, event, a night at the track. And
1: on a more personal note, um, you, actually you just you just talked about Jim Wolfenson, and um, I'm going to ask you about who inspires you the most and mm. has that inspiration changed over the years? And interestingly enough, Jim Wolfenson has been that for me, interestingly mm. enough. And that all started from talking to him and meeting him, um, mm. you know, during the Olympics, and, and I had the good fortune to have him um, host a private dinner at one of the clubs he's a member of in New York in twenty When was that? 2014, when I led a philanthropy study tour to New York. And uh, so I'm just interested from your perspective because he was an amazing Australian, I have to say.
0: Yeah, he was. I'd met him a few times. He'd come out for reunions or he'd ring me when he wanted an address of someone, if I in <laughs> community, had passed, someone had passed away or whatever. He was a great man. Um, oh Nelson Mandela was um
1: ah, huh. uh, yeah.
0: so i um, when you remember um, Gough Whitlam and Margaret and I um, headed off around Africa chasing votes um,
1: <laughs> I remember that yeah yeah
0: and um, the Brian um <laughs> <laughs> and John fainter uh, picking up the cost of um, the Private jet across the country, across Africa, because you, you can t- commercially travel up and down. But we we started. We did 13 countries in 30 days. We started though um, in Johannesburg, and before Mr. Mandela was elected president, and my friend Sam Ram Sami, who was um, the non-racial Olympic Committee person on the outside, um, during those um, apartheid years period he was incarcerated we had an hour with him and um uh, so i had the benefit of listening to um Goff and um mr mandela um the uh, and that it was just um the serenity of the band the um, there was just no retribution that came through he was just worried about um uh the new South Africa and how he was going to hold it together. Chief lazy, I think, was causing trouble at the time and Goff suggested we give him a state which was foreign to anything that Goff dreamed <laughs> of in this country. And then I, I met him. Uh, so that was just quite unbelievable. That was in September. Mm-hmm. It was just um, September or August. It was about a month before our vote in Monte Carlo. Yes. And, uh, then I um, we... Um, we had helped them actually um, in 92 as well. So I had met him before when, um, when he came into the village in Barcelona to talk to his athletes and then you might recall he visited the team in um, the Olympic Village in Sydney and uh, so I was invited around for a cup of tea with him. Um, so he's he's clearly the, uh, the most mm. significant and the most inspirational man. The, uh, something that's really happening in my, happened in my life though is... Uh, is um, Uh, I think Catherine Freeman, to me, is now um, Mm. getting a a massive, massive status in this country. Mm. Um, 20 years after, the um, when they had all the um, uh, replays of the ceremonies and everything else that happened during our games, I don't know if you saw the documentary Freeman. Uh, Mm, I
1: did. It was fantastic. It was
0: fantastic. And so, you know, I was the one who'd gone to Los Angeles and asked her to light the flame and um, so I had a fair bit invested in that Um, and she um, uh, you know I said to her you've you've got to uh, uh, you know you want your major job that is winning the 400 meters and um, (laughs) she said to me um, John I love pressure that's when I perform at my best and then um, you know we'd gone through all the YME, and she'd suggested Dawn and she'd suggested Bradman anyway we and then when I went out, took her out to the car, and uh, she sidled up to me and said, "John, I'll understand if you change your mind." And uh, <laughs> you know, I, I tear up when I tell the story. But we've wow. become very close friends. Um, mm. And she rang me after the uh, the Freeman and um, documentary, and said, "What did you think?" And I said, "I liked it very much." She said, "Yeah, I knew I had to do it. Um, I waited till now." Um, I'm a bit older, I understand more the significance of what we did, um, you know, in terms of reconciliation, and, um, and we talked along those lines. I also um, asked her to do the acknowledgement of country when we did our presentation to the IOC Future Host Commission on the 8th of February. Um, and she uh, did a magnificent acknowledgement talking of her grandparents in northern Queensland and then um she'd been moved around with her family you know Mackay where all her running was in the desert but <laughs> uh, um, her formative years and this that and the other and she's got a um, she understands the significance of what she did for Australia and um uh so yeah, she's right up there now as someone you know I know a lot of politicians and a lot of government leaders and things but um I think she's one special lady.
1: Mm. Well, I, I think that's fantastic, John, that you're acknowledging her because that's a great uh, anecdote about what she talked about,
0: love's yeah. pressure.
1: You couldn't get more pressure if you tried, could you, going into that no. 400 final? I mean, that was just um, extraordinary, <laughs> you know.
0: The pressure on all of us too.
1: <laughs> I know because I everyone was just going, you got to oh. do it, you got to do it. Yeah, anyway, it but thank you. Thanks for that. Look, are there any regrets so far?
0: No, I, um, gee, I've been privileged um,
1: mm. and, um,
0: you know, I've, I've been on the Australian Olympic Committee since I was a delegate from rowing in the mid-70s and I went on the board in um, the Federation. It was then in 81. So, you know, I've met through the Olympics um, people I wouldn't have met as a, a city solicitor, would I? <laughs> so <laughs> a little bit more exciting. I'm saying that to as a, a former lawyer yourself. Yeah. But it, um, it's um oh it's taken me places and introduced me to people that I wouldn't have I've met uh, Xi Jinping twice I've been in private meetings with Bach, with him uh, you know prime minister the prime minister that and um, I like that stuff you know I'm, I don't get carried away with uh, um, my own position but I do like meeting important people and particularly political leaders and other oh, I love meeting great athletes too yeah. great athletes yeah. that's a great so no, I have no regrets. No,
1: never been tempted by yeah. politics.
0: Oh, I've been asked by. Oh, I bet you have. both <laughs> sides, no, 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 no,
1: no. too smart for that. No, no I just,
0: I don't think that, um, you know, I, I'd ever like the discipline of um, reporting to someone else and um, being told what to do. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, fair enough. Fair enough. Not
0: in my nature.
1: No. And what else, anything else on your bucket list to achieve? I mean, I, I was thinking there might be one possible thing, but I, I just wondered anything.
0: Oh, no, no, the thing, the thing with this is, um, you know, I, I was the executive director for the first Brisbane bid. Uh, Salud Atkinson employed me. Mm. Uh, Barry Paul, Robert Mathers interviewed me. So I went up there for a year in 86 with the family and then we didn't win it. We came third behind Barcelona and... Paris, I mean, it were out, but we beat three other cities. So this is unfinished business for me, and it's not finished business when we get selected. If we're fortunate enough to be selected, it'll be finished business when we deliver. Mm. And that was the same obligation that I felt, you know, that's why I pushed so hard for the Sports Commission with Sydney. You know, I'm the bloke out there who um, is known to all the federations, known to all the National Olympic Committees. I'm the one they're going to win, you know, to bring their problems to if things aren't being done properly. Um, and so I really want to make sure, I won't be um, in a senior position uh, by then in the organising committee, but I really want to make sure that the, uh, we uh, not only win, but that we deliver great games.
1: Well, look, I'm, I'm pretty confident about that. and We've got a pretty good track record, haven't we, in Australia? So do, um, it's do. there. Yeah. Now, look, John, I'd like to turn now to, to more of a business investing focus, and it's particularly relevant because of yeah. what I do with my day job these days with FutureGen, and we're, we're obviously into equity investing. Now, firstly, you've been an absolute master at building what I know is Australia's biggest investment fund, certainly in sport, and it must be up there, if not one of the biggest in the non-profit sector in Australia as well. I'm not sure if it's bigger than the the big university, Sydney and Melbourne, the Australian Olympic Foundation. Now, I believe yeah. you started with a, I think it was an $88 million windfall from the Sydney Olympic bid.
0: Well, it wasn't a windfall. You might remember um, we had it. Uh, they were to give us 90% of any surplus. Um, and. I'd made sure that attached to some little document that I'd dreamt up was the budget, and that they couldn't vary the budget at any time to throw in a bridge or a a railway line to make sure that there was no surplus. And then, um, when Gary Pemmelan was chair of the committee, I said uh, to Gary, "I thought I'd bring this to a head. Look, Gary, you know there's a fiduciary duty here to maximise the surplus for the AOC." And Kerry Packer was on the board. I've never heard such (laughs) rubbish. And anyway, the um, and Gary then um wouldn't let me in. The, I was the senior vice president, he wouldn't let me in the meetings unless I uh, released all the directors from any liability. Ah, uh, uh, fascinating! Have. So then Michael Knight knew that this had to be um, they had to buy the, their way out of this. Um, and so, um, we um. Uh, I was invited to the house of Guangzhou, which was some Labour Party Chinese <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> to meet he and Richardson one one Sunday afternoon, evening after we'd had a, a slinging match um, on, in the media, and um, they started with an offer of twenty five million, and uh, I left there with seventy five million. Nice uh, work. And uh, yep, and uh, maybe seventy? Anyway, I rang him then and said, but of course that was that was in the, the bid budget. Dollars of 1992, and there's an inflator of 1.111, whatever, and it got up to 100. And then, um, he said, oh, can we, we're doing a press conference, we just call it 70. <laughs> but then, after that, the IOC, when the um SOCOG was saying we're short of money, they said, well, Look, we'll give up our 10 percent. And they asked the AOC to give up our 10 percent, it was um, the 88, I think, um, something like that. But Michael Knight paid that money early, and we um. Uh, because the, suddenly the cash flow was good with SOCOG. and um, anyway, we got to, we started two thousand and one with uh, one hundred and one million dollars. Um, it is now, um, even after an up and down last year, it's now one hundred and seventy million, and that's after after distributions to the AOC of one hundred and thirty one million. So it's, we've turned the 100 into 300, um, and it's a very, very important um, uh, part of the AOC's income. It's why we can, um, the AOC doesn't ask for or receive anything from federal government or any of the governments. We get some money for our state appeals, but it just goes to the teams. But um, So it's um, I think it's um, been somewhere up around the 8% um, cumulative over that full period we have we, it's, there's a board, uh, there's a, a separate foundation. Um, um, we've had some fine leaders of the uh, the community, people on it, David Clark was on it, Sir Donald Triscothi, people like that. John Euston is the current chair. Um, the um, Paul Bachelor, Helen Nugent, and um, Angus Douglas from the Gold Coast. Then uh, from our own board, um, we've got Matt Allen, who is ex-head of UBS. We've got um, Craig Carragher, who... Run scape and you know set up Elliston for Kerry um, and uh, me um, we engage mercers for advice as to asset allocation and then um, they recommend the different funds and we interview them and we make decisions on them and I think we've got 10 12 13 of those at the moment and you know we're, we're active we if they don't perform them we, we move them on and, um, but they've been very, very good. And uh, generally we're long uh, investors, um, the, uh, we, in, as I say, a very fine committee who volunteer their time for us to, um, to guide this. So they're an advisory committee to the board of the Australian Olympic foundation. And the other important thing is that we, <coughs> the distributions to the AOC are capped at 4% of net asset value at the start of every four years. And so, um, if anyone, if there was a need for more than that, first the board would have to pass a 75% resolution. Then it would have to go to the full membership, of the AOC. And then we've got, um, these people called guardians, which are the um, honorary life members of the AOC, the Peter Montgomery's and the Jeff Henkeys and, um, those people, you have to get through 75% of them. So the money's locked up. It is absolutely locked up. And the, um, um, and the only beneficiary the way we've done it is the AOC, um, so it's. um, But it means the AOC can retain its independence. We can stand up to John Wileys of this world, um, and um, it's very, very important. And uh, we're the envy of um, the Americans have a, a large income through television rights. We don't get that here, but um, there's no one else in the Olympic world that's got a foundation like this, and. Uh, as you say, it's uh, probably unique in Australian sport too.
1: I know that some of our super generous uh, future generation fund managers, including Wilson Asset Management... Yeah, Wilson's um, there. Uh, yeah. ..are managing some of that money for the foundation. So, um, yeah, they've done it pro bono for us and I, I, I gather yeah. they do it pro bono for you. So I think, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a, it's a great we've, model.
0: We've got Schroders, Colonial, Lend-Lease, Goodman, Arrow Street, Allianz, uh, Bernstein, Capstream, North Cape, Wilson, Vanguard, first senior Pendle. Um, And that performance um, last year of uh, still managing to um, basically uh, finish the year where we started, we moved to about 20% cash last year um, because of the volatility. Mm. And so, you know, that's the cash is earning something, but, um, um, you know, with CapStream and people like that, but it's... It's, gee, we've done well with it. I do say so myself.
1: I have to say. And look, what lessons on that success with the foundation would you like to impart to other non-profits? Because they, they often struggle. I see it all the time to build their reserves. Yeah. Any tips you want to impart?
0: Well, you know, you've got to have good advice. Um, and, um, you know, so we've got an advisory committee, we've got nurses, and then uh, you've got to have a strategy. So we, our, our strategy is... To achieve um, CPI plus the four um, percent, which is pretty ambitious these days. four uh, percent is the is what we distribute, so it's going to grow by the CPI, is the theory. Um, the iron, um, you've just got to be disciplined. If the um, if the AOC is short on anything, um, you know, be tough. You go and borrow from the bank. You know, we're very very disciplined with this, and it's mm. um. It's
1: paid off. and, and uh, yeah. any sort of windfall ahead with Brisbane that, you, that you're cooking up?
0: No, it's, <laughs> it's different. They, they change, <laughs> they call it the Coates Amendment in the IOC. Yeah, funny that. Yeah, in, in 2004, <laughs> they brought into the host city contract that you can't have any pre existing contracts. <laughs> even, there you go,
1: right?
0: Um, but but the we would still get 20% of um, any surplus. But the IOC these days is very keen to uh, run the games um, without any burden on the taxpayers and the ratepayers. The games um, are budgeted to break even for Brisbane because the IOC puts in um, what will be the budget's about 4.5 billion at the moment until we start and reduce things. But the IOC is putting in 2.5 billion of that. Bang, committed. The IOC's already sold the. Um, Television rights for America alone for the 32 quadrennium for 2.4 billion US. And wow. so, and um, uh, our top sponsors, mm-hmm. the worldwide sponsors, they're all, we didn't lose any sponsors during COVID. So, um, mm-hmm. but it's, um, uh, anyway, I'm not sure that there'll be a surplus, but if there is, um, there's some money there. But um, we just got to make sure we, we, um, Spend it wisely and be t- totally transparent with Brisbane. Now,
1: look, a lot a lot of people may not know that you served on the David Jones board for an incredible seventeen years, including some time as the deputy chairman. Step, I think you stepped down in twenty twelve. I mean, looking back now and what you've learned, is there any advice you'd have for the DJ's board and CEO today?
0: Well, it's it's under private ownership these days. as not West by the South Africans, but look, I think the the issues facing David Jones and facing Maya were pretty obvious to us back then. The um, the footprint of um, the department stores uh, had become too big to um, include in a department store as, you, you know, white goods and furnishings um, meant that um, you, you couldn't compete with Jerry or Bing Lee or... Um, Others, you just can't compete with them in terms of the volume. Um, and um, so, but we couldn't, you, you, when you go into these shopping centres in particular, you can't, um, you go in for long-term leases because you're the anchor tenant. So um, there wasn't a lot we can do. We I, we did a little bit with um, uh, Frank Lowy and, um, you know, he opened the, Got us some Myer stores, and we transferred us to Myer some stores that were better for them. Um, but the stores, uh, the stores are generally too big, and um, you've seen now in Sydney, uh, CBD, mm. um, sold Market Street, and um, concentrating just on Elizabeth Street, and um, that'll be more profitable. So you got, mm. I think that was all pretty obvious, and uh, but we just um, we had long leases we couldn't deal with. The um, uh, still a service industry and uh, people expect that from a of store, store like David Jones. The other thing is um, uh, we were looking at or we were into online but um, COVID really has uh, been the success of online and um, mm. I think that's um, and it doesn't matter that you're um, a department store, you can still have online. Um, I keep forgetting the name of the very good um, department store in London. That used to be basically a cooperative, and um, but you you know so it had a lot of lot of catalogues and catalogue sales, and so they transitioned to online. They were doing thirteen percent when I was in 2012 when I was on the board, and uh, but we we were thinking maybe eight to ten percent's a reasonable target. Well, um, then the retail is doing a lot better than eight percent on online now, or they're not trying so. Things have changed, but um, they were great years. I absolutely uh, enjoyed my time at David Jones.
1: And look, finally, on a, on a much lighter note, I've, I've seen breakdancing is a new sport for the 2024 Paris Olympics. To me, it's dance, you know, it's the arts, not a sport. But there you go. Well,
0: I'll correct you. It's called break. Oh, sorry, break. But, right. Uh, <laughs> what
1: um, would What would be your choice? Now I know you're not the decision maker, but if you were the decision maker for a new sport or two for Brisbane in 2032, now I think I'd be voting for cane toad racing. But what do you think?
0: Oh, uh, We squash that immediately. <laughs> um, the, um, the three. There are four sports that Paris selected. Uh, uh, each, the difference is each host city now, as you indicated, can select a sport for their games only. And Tokyo put baseball, softball on because they're so big there, but they really can't be fitted into the Olympic program. Now we've cut back to the number of athletes to um, 10,500. The, um, but they had also surfing, skateboarding, and sports climbing. And Paris have retained surfing sports climbing and skateboarding, and then added break. And um, I don't think for, for Queensland that you could say no to um, so certainly the surfing side again. No, you know, no way. You couldn't. Surfing. Yeah. Um, and skateboarding is a huge sport now across the country and around the world. It's for kids who's aren't disciplined, they don't want to go and sit and play cricket for three hours on a Saturday morning or <laughs> mum and dad don't want to go with them. But it's activity, they get out and do it. Yep. And um, so and um, I don't know much about break. Anyway, I look forward to seeing you. <laughs> and um, I think um, not much wrong with um, skateboarding and uh, um, surfing and uh, I'll let the experts decide on the rest. You know, uh, there was something like 30 sports that... Um, apply whenever these, these opportunities happen and um, uh, you've got to keep that um, that dream alive for them too.
1: Well, look, thank you uh, ever so much, John, for joining me today. It's been a, an absolute pleasure um, talking with you and uh, I really, really, you've just got um, some incredible stories and an incredible amount of knowledge. And, you know, just with your role, you know, as heading up these uh, commissions to put on these games, I, I can't imagine the workload that you must be have been carrying and will carry through until at least we finish Tokyo anyway because of this pandemic. But congratulations on everything you've done and everything you've done for sport, you know, in Australia and globally. I look forward to sharing with you the third episode of Conversations with Future Generation Season 2 in April uh, next month, which, of course, will be my last podcast oh. um, for Conversations with Future Generation before I... Uh, finish up in the role so um thanks again john it's been an absolute pleasure
0: no i've enjoyed it and nice um, speaking to an old work colleague
1: thank you very much john and thanks for that uh, that uh privilege in in working on the games back back then the bid and then of course the game so thank you very very much
0: nice to speak louise thank you for listening to this episode of conversations with future generation brought to you by impact investment companies future generation australia and future generation global If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your network. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts.